Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Good afternoon. Welcome to um, this final salon in our Experimenta series. And this one is a very special event, Anatomy of an Artist Film Production, with Andrea Lucas Zimmerman and her team, who I'll introduce in a moment. Now, the objective of the um, um, Anatomy of an Artist Film Production, we did one last year on... Um, um, Annie Kirshner's film, uh, Moderation, is really not so much to investigate the, the themes and ideas of the film, but I'm sure they will come in as an integral part of how the film got made, but to actually look at, um, uh, to kind of strip the, that away, strip actually the content away as almost like the flesh, and expose the bones of the structure of how a film actually gets made. And the reason that we want to do this is because it's, it's pretty difficult to get any kind of independent film made, but there are obvious places to go for support and there are experienced producers that you can pull in. But actually, if you're an artist thinking, I want to make a feature film about a, particularly about a subject that um, uh, is complex and confrontational and quite challenging, then it's, there, isn't, there is no obvious pathway. Every individual has to decide step by step as they go along in a much more artisanal approach if that's you don't want me using that word um of how to how to how to get something kind of made and and it's and possibly where you start at the beginning what you end up at the end is very very different in a way that an independent film may not because you have a script and you have a cast of actors and so on so we want to do this in order to really try to help other filmmakers understand the processes, the pitfalls, the obstacles that are that, that may well come your way, and how how this particular team has managed to work to work together. And I th I absolutely know from speaking to Andrea before that the teamwork has been really really crucial. Um, so I just wanted to start by asking how many people are filmmakers, and by that I also including producers. That's about half of you. That's great. Okay, so I am going. To, I'm just going to introduce um, the the panel we have here. Um, so it's it's a bit of reading, but I think it's really quite important to know people's backgrounds. In fact, more important sometimes to know the backgrounds of people other than the director, because they're the people who you don't 
really hear about very often. Um, so Andrea Luca Zimmerman, director. Andrea's films have been nominated and shortlisted for the Grierson Award, the Aesthetica Art Prize, the Golden Orange and the Jarman Award, among others. And she received the Archangel Open Award for Cycle in 2014 with Adrian Jackson. Um, of Cardboard Citizens, and her work explores the impact of globalization, power structures, militarism, and uh, denied histories with works such as Estate, A Reverie from 2015, tracking the passing of the Haggerston Estate in East London and the utopian promise of social housing it once offered, and Tascafa, Stories of the Street from 2013, on resistance and coexistence told through the lives of the street dogs of Istanbul and voiced by uh, the the late and much missed John Berger. Her, fir, her, 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 her film that we're talking about, Erase and Forget, is an inquiry into the nature of human consciousness and the limits of, de of deniability. And it premiered in Berlin and, of course, is screened here at the London Film Festival as well. And it was nominated for the Glasschut Original Documentary Award. Um, prior to making these feature works, and still, I'm sure, part of your life, um, Andrea is also co-founder of the artist collective Fugitive Images and Vision Machine, uh, and collab and um, collab which collaborated on the Academy Award-nominated documentary The Look of Silence, which I'm sure many of you know from Joshua Oppenheimer. Um, and she co-curated uh, real estates at Pier in London with David Roberts in association with Lux as a social, discursive and imaginative space around issues of social injustice. And her first solo exhibition, Common Ground, was at Sp uh, Spike Island in Bristol this year. So please welcome Andrea. So Gareth Evans, producer, now, Gareth has many hats, as I'm sure you know. Um, but in this context, uh, Gareth is London-based writer, editor, film and event producer, and Whitechapel Art Gallery's adjunct moving image curator. He's also co-curator of Flipside Festival, um, uh, the Swedenborg Film Festival, and the Whitstable Biennale. He produced the essay film Patience After Seabold by Grant G as part of his nationwide <coughs> arts project, The Reenchantment, which ran from 2008. 2011 and has recently executively produced as we know Erase and Forget. Um, he's also produced for uh, Unseen for Dryden Goodwin for the Royal um, Museums in Greenwich, By Ourselves by Andrew Cotting and Ian Sinclair for Soda Pictures, um, In Time and Archive Life by Lassie Johansson and is in development with Fly Film and the BFI for The Lighthouse, again directed by Grant G and written with Sasha Hales. And he commissioned Things by Ben Rivers, which won the 2015 Tiger Award at Rotterdam. And so please welcome Gareth. So Taina Gellis is the editor of the film, but I think um, editor is, um, from what Andrea has already explained to me, is, is an understatement. I think we need to, need to use the term creative editor. And um, so Taina is a cinematographer and also an editor. Um, two shorts that she shot and directed were... I edited, I didn't... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I meant... Uh, right, you edited. Um, were um, Faisal Valufa's The Curse from 2012 and Rate Me from 2015. 15, which won the best film at Cannes Directors Fortnight. And in 2017, um, Taina completed her fourth feature of cinematographer, American Curious, by Gabby Lulara in Mexico City, and shot Ogenblick 
by the artist Vivian Dick. Oh, I've seen that. Um, <laughs> featured in, um, uh, in British cinema, uh, and, and she fe featured in British cinematographers Meet the New Wave. Tana is proud to have been nominated for the first ever Jules Wright Prize, indeed. So please welcome Tana. Next is um, Marta Michalowska, who's also a producer, and Marta is curator and commissioner, uh, curator, commissioner, and artist, and she is the director of the Whopping Project, who of course support the Jules Wright Award. Um, um, and the Whopping Project is a London-based uh, non-for-profit organisation commissioning and producing new works in the visual arts, film, literature and theatre. Um, she is currently producing two major new visual arts commissions, Topologies of Air by Shona Illingworth and Making Her Mark by Mary McLean, and uh, recently supported Andrea's feature, as we know, um, and she wo also works for Flamin Film London Artists Moving Image Network where she runs the Jarman Award and is also editing a book, Moving Image Notebooks, which look back at the first decade of the Jarman Award, which is going to be produced, published next year. Thank you. Thank you. And then, cer certainly, uh, last but certainly not least, we have Amir Ayab Allen, who's, who's producer, and Awina's award-winning British filmmaker currently producing Mark J. Francis' latest feature documentary for uh, Speak It Films, developing, uh, developing a contemporary drama cycle for Art Angel and the BFI, and will co-produce Sarah Gavron's new drama um, fa uh, for Fable Pictures, the BFI, and Film 4. She's involved... She was um, heavily involved in realising Claire Barnard's acclaimed The Selfish Giant and Sarah Gavron's Brick Lane. Um, and her associate producer production supervisor credits also include Electricity, um, uh, Gillian Waring's self-made Claire Barnard's uh, The Wonderful, The Arbor, and her latest film Dark River. And she was BIFA nominated for uh, um, short, listed for an Academy Award, and won a National Film Award for her short fiction films. And in 2000. 14, she set up Bright Wire Films with Meg Clark. So please welcome Amina. Um, so what I first want to do is to um, start with um, Andrea and the genesis of the idea. Where, where I mean, the idea obviously came first and then what, ha, talk us through how you developed your idea and then how you started to approach how you would think about getting a work made. Did you immediately think of a feature film in this, in the sense that we see now or did it start out differently or was it a, quite an open process and you, you, you worked on it, as you, you developed it as you went along? Um, first of all, who's seen the film? So some of you haven't seen it, which is, um, so I brought two clips um, which we're gonna watch after just a brief introduction. I think it would be very useful and helpful to see actually also how this um, subject matter was approached. And, um, but first of all, it was part of a research project for a different film um, that I met him, the, the main character of the film. And it was when I realized though how I, I uncovered um, archive material, which was unbelievable to me. For example, training of Afghan Mujahideen. Do you want to just say who the, who the him he is? is? Oh, yeah. he. Yeah. Yeah. Just <laughs> don't know. Yeah. So he's a very famous um, or infamous um, Vietnam war veteran. That's how he's known for it. But he was um, a special forces soldier who was one of the highest decorated soldiers that came out of the Vietnam War. But um, 
also has led mobile guerrilla forces, which was developed in Vietnam. Um, they worked um, mainly behind animal, enemy lines. There's been many books written about the mobile guerrilla force, um, for those of you interested in military history. And But it's then he ran Special Forces um, Panama, developed the Special Forces Manual there. Um, and how he describes in the film, he could conduct his own war. And that's one of the clips which I'm also showing. Um, so there was a time um, that was really interested me because what happens when we say, for example, so in the 80s, in the 1980s in America, when he was then leaving, so late 70s, early 80s, he was leaving and going on secret missions to um, Southeast Asia where the CIA was accused of funding or helping fund COVID operations um, through drug smuggling. And they had to apologize. So it was it became um, known in that period. So he was part also of that time. Um, and he filmed um, these encounters that he had there and then fell from grace, became an activist against his own government. Um, but also before that, he had killed many, many people in close combat operations. So I think there's a statistic which is quite crazy how do we get to these statistics but you can apparently only kill up to 500 people and then you go insane um, so how do you study that um, but he and his teams did um, kill around 400 people in close combat operations which means not necessarily with guns um, and so it does lead to a lot of damage also on the bodies that were killed and on the people that come back and we heroicize it then through this big Hollywood fiction film. So that was the real beginning of my inquiry into um, how do we deal with violence that is elsewhere that we do for a certain reason or we believe and he wanted to be a soldier and he wanted to be very good and he was very good. What made him want to join the army in the first place? What made him want to try and test himself as a man as he talks about it? I wanted to know if I could if I could do it. Um, and he's not the only person I spoke with who said that. So I'm really interested in these, in these ideas of when we believe we have a voice in this world. And it's not necessarily just the military anyway. So I uncovered all this archive material that was uh, incredible. And he had trained Afghan Mujahideen in America in the 80s as well, um, which were kind of, he operated very much in the shady worlds between legality and illegality. So deniability, deniable missions. Hollywood funded some of his missions in exchange for story rights. So normally what happens is that people option when something happened and then they make the film. Um, but in his case, there were two incidences which I could find where people already participated in the actual making of the missions. You know, later we can laugh maybe about them because he's been ridiculed quite a lot. But I take it very seriously because I feel, you know, if that's possible, what does it actually mean about how we make history, who's making history? Um, so that's maybe the kind of outline I want to give. And then after we've all spoke, then we can just watch the first clip and then talk a little bit about the, the way in which I approach this subject matter. Yeah. Do you want to say about, did you envisage it as a feature film? Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. So th there's somebody <laughs> here in the audience who didn't like me for a long time because it was supposed to be a short film and I got some funding, 2005. Mm -hmm. um, that's how long it was in the making. <laughs> and then I realized, though, the more I, I was researching, no, this has to be, it became, I mean, you will see when you, or those of you who have seen the film, how many different expressions of this one life how many different ways one could look at this one life. It couldn't be contained in a, in a short film any longer. Um, so he grew. And, and then I had to continue. Mm -hmm.
<laughs> so what did you, just pulling it to be a very practical thing, once you decided that it needed to be a feature, what did you do next? I mean, the reason why it took so long was twofold. It, it took over 10 years to make, and one was because um, I, I'm a, I believe that history demands its own treatment, right? Like, so I couldn't submit myself to a certain way of talking about this history. It had to find its own way, and that is quite a complicated mm. process um, where even I was caught out myself, like, what is it that I wanted him to say? Why did I want so? I needed this time to mature, I suppose, with him mm. in all of my films, I feel like this. but. Um, and it was very, very hard to find funding for a film that doesn't take a certain stance. Mm. And of course I take a stance. I'm politically very different from him. But the inquiry can't be from a position of moral high ground. It just can't be. It can't be a slapstick treatment. And it's really interesting, and I don't want to um, criticize some of the films, but some of the films which are very popular in the last few years that are seen as documentaries are completely made up. They're completely, completely fictions. Yet they're seen as documentaries, whereas actually when we look at the facts sometimes, it becomes crazy. Mm -hmm. So why do we need to make up history when it's already, you know, um, in itself so complex and complicated? So I think um, there's a climate for funding, and this is, I guess, why we're all sitting here. It, it was not easy to find funding for this film, and, and so I had to make it piecemeal and work in between and then go back. <laughs> so it was very much driven by by my sheer stubbornness to So this. at this point you you decided to make a feature film and you were shoot you were shooting, you were interviewing Bogritz and you were shooting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you should, how much material did so where what at what point in the process did did you did did you approach Gareth, Gareth approached Gareth know that you were working on it and said, I think I can help you here or you went to mm. Gareth and said um, I really need an exec on this. Are you mm. willing? How did how did that happen? Gareth saw the first in two thousand and seven. I think Gareth saw a cut that was produced in two thousand and seven. Yeah. Do you know about that? Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. I, I like Gareth to go. Can I to mention it? Yeah, yeah, please do. Yeah, please come Could, in. No, I mean Gareth. because yeah. um. Is that picking up just like that? Yeah, great. Uh, well, thanks to Helen and Elizabeth and the festival, of course, for making an event like this possible. It's not often yeah, a yeah. film of this scale has a kind of discussion space, you know, um, uh, gifted to it like this. So many thanks to everyone involved. Um, no, I was thinking, as Andrea was talking about when I first became involved with it, but I think it also, as Helen said, you know, this is not so much a conversation about content, but the content of this film is indivisible from its production history. I mean, you cannot separate the two. It's not a story taken off the shelf, an adaptation of a novel or such like, um, where there's a previous history that can be understood and, and it can be framed very quickly or easily, you know, slipped into a certain kind of category or pigeonhole. Um, the challenge of the making is, is both, as Andrea said very well, about the difficulty of relating and finding your way into this material, but also then of promoting and proposing that material to a wider you know, peer group, industry structure and community and so on. So I first saw um, material in a way that had foregrounded and, and kind of um, found, provided the foundation for this back in 2003, actually, with Globalization yeah. Tapes, which was the Vision Machine uh, feature film about plantation workers in Ind Indonesia, which Andrea made with Josh Oppenheimer and Michael Uwe Christine Sin. And that was the, the, the shared sort of longest feature project that came out of that collective. Um, and then they took various directions, as Andrea said, into different material. Um, but the, the values and the, and the politics and the collective activity of, of the making was, in, was embedded and very visible in that first feature. So that was a very attractive way of working to me. It kind of led back to various other 
historical moments of collective film action around Chris Marker, Goddard, and, and various others that we can think of. Um, so it was very striking that um, to find that way of working in, in a kind of post-September the 11th climate, which I think is important to say because that is indivisible from the challenge this film has had in being made and now circulating, I think. Um, so I saw that material, and then, as Andrea said, just a couple of years later, saw a first cut of this, uh, of this, of this particular focused uh, aspect of the project, um, and you know it was fascinating and really very, very interesting. And he was a compelling figure that was not, um, whose personality was not able to be reduced to a simple kind of binary around. Um, you know, uh, good or evil, black or white, and so on. And because he himself had such a, a clearly a complexity of response to his own history, um, which is why Andrea, of course, was interested in uh, pursuing the film. Because had he been, you know, uh, in, in no doubt about what he'd done, then I'm sure you would never have, uh, you mm. know, spent more than a few minutes with him. Um, it was that complexity of response, which then, of course, the world had collectively in many ways across different territories uh, post-September 11th that made this project both really necessary, I think, but also very, very challenging to, to produce and fund. Um, and I think the first stop, official first stop, would have been then with, with the short funding from Film London, mm. wouldn't it? Which that was in 2005. 2005. Mm. So many thanks to everyone at Film London for seeing the possibility of this project. Mm. But I think there's no question that it needed a much larger platform because it's not something that can be reduced to... Uh, to, to these binary positions that we're so familiar uh, with from various other works of a similar nature. Um, and so I think it grew it grew from there, but it really was growing. The, the, the challenge, first of all, was of course to get Andrea backwards and forwards to the States, because this was first this is you know this was this was primary material that needed to be shot. The archive material that emerged out of Bo's own library and obviously from online and from news sources and, and other media. There sources. was no Vimeo. Can I just say though, because of course now there was, but there was no Vimeo uh, YouTube when I first started um, in YouTube the way which we exist. have now. Exactly. So I, I, the archive research was very difficult. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, that's also interesting because as, for those of you who've seen the film, and obviously those who hopefully will do, uh, and the clips will indicate as well, um, it's about, as much about a relationship to the image as it is about its relationship to its content and how it navigates what the image can do, what <coughs> it can't do, what it obscures, what it reveals, and so on. And of course, YouTube is a provider of a kind of global form of image archive is, is both in, you know, indivisible from this film's production but also from how we think about some of these issues. So it was, it was the film London stop, it was, it was you know, whenever money was available you know, on a travel, you know, in travel terms to get Andrea to Nevada and back and so on. Um, and with the first longer cut in 2007 it became clear that this needed a, a, a greater form of structure behind it. It couldn't work on, in an ad hoc way. But also because of the complexity of, and this, this is where, where Tyna should come in I think because she shot early footage of it as well, um, because the complexity of response really needed time to work through and because Bo himself was working through the process of meeting with Andrea and trying to find out what, what this film was for for him as well talking in some cases for the first time about this incredibly difficult history that he's uh, been directly involved in. Um, it became clear, I think, although it was never, I don't think it was ever formally spoken as such, um, that the material was not all in place, clearly. It might have been in numbers of hours or in a certain kind of uh, um, you know, volume of footage, but, the, but the, the deep core of the material was not in place in that, at that stage. And, in, and ironically, the more, one, the more one met with Bo, the more Andrea met with Bo and filmed with Bo, the longer it, it was clear it was going to take, because actually it, it needed further, further mining, deeper down, um, below the surface of what was either a compelling or disturbing image, into the real core intention of his personality, his history, and Andrea's intention in making the film, I think. So it was a kind of 
Catch-22, the more you filmed, the more you needed to film at that point until the wondrous Tyna stepped in with her incredible magic edit wand. <laughs> no, no, but you know when you have a film. You know, I think this is the, the problem about the film industry has to wake up that, especially in documentary, you can't make a film to a deadline. It's impossible. You have to support structures when you have, when you meet a, this a life. It's a human life with all its complexities and it sometimes takes longer. Well, exactly. I didn't mean to say there wasn't a film in those early, in those earlier uh, yeah. rushes and edits. There was a film, but it wasn't the film that Andrea wanted to make. Yeah. And and also, as time went on, and as as history and current events, and obviously Andrea's life and Bo's life also changed and shifted. Those factors had to be um, put into the mix. It, this was not made in some sort of parallel creative bubble outside of life experience. That's really mm -hmm. clear. Um, mm -hmm. And it had to respond to to circumstances changing on the ground. I think. Before we bring in time, can I just yeah. just just so for the audience's benefit, just sort of like the kind of timeline. So what, what, um, at what point, how, how many, how many, how many, because it's, it's the, whole pro, the whole project took 10 years, at what point were you at what, how, in time, in time frame, in the time frame? Well, 2003 was the first time we met yeah. Bo um, on a big research trip around the genocide in 1965 uh, in Indonesia. And, um, Met him because, yeah, we we thought he was involved within, in the um, in the kind of military operations, covert and secret military operations, which were then used in Vietnam, um, yeah. So, but he wasn't. So he was he was involved in other things that we found out. Um, then in two thousand and five, I went back to film with him. Two thousand and six. Um, and it was meant to be just a short. I wanted to make just a. It was, it was I was interested in him because he was the real life Rambo. There was so much um, news archive material around him, um, and I met with people who were also working on the Rambo Nexus. One of which is in the film. He's a big arms maker, as well. Um, so I was interested in the kind of how how Hollywood films use these real experts to either model the characters on it or the histories. Um, and then I found out also about the kind of financing. I didn't have then the archive material yet. And so on the subsequent trips I went to, I found this archive material and I came back. Um, and one of my very, very um, dear friends then here in the UK, who was a big ghostwriter, very famous um, writer who passed away. Um, he's also in the film Tudor Gates. He wrote like Hammer House Horror, horror movies, um, Barbarella. He was a ghostwriter on and stuff. Um, and also a, a famous theatre maker, um, and he was really great. And he said, I've made a film with him once. We wanted to pressurise Margaret Thatcher to talk about the drug dealing. And I was like, no way. You know, I was, I, I didn't. So then I had this, these rushes of this film. And then I started to go, oh my God, this is bigger than just this, this iceberg. Um, and then I wrote, um, yeah, then I started writing about him, really and this year, researching. Just, yeah. So that was not in 2007, mm -hmm. and then, um, or six, seven. And then it became a longer film, then I <coughs> met, then I went back again on a longer trip in 2008. Mm -hmm. Then I met Tyna in, we went back in 2011. 2011. Mm. 10. 10. <laughs> and then um, in 2011, and then I went back by myself a few more times. After. So, I mean, there was back and forth, but so these were like major me, milestones. How you two met? Did you know each other previously? Um, um, what did you What did you say to Tanya to say, I'd like you on board on this project? Um, I'm sure she didn't take much convincing, but just like what kind, what was the conversation like? How, did that, how was that set up? 
we didn't talk that much actually mm -hmm. uh, it was instinctive and we were working together and I think we got to know each other by working together and in, so in 2011 I was shooting with Andrea in, ten. in the in ten in uh, in the United States and I met Bo and uh, it was through I saw I saw how in, how engaged Andrea was. She was always listening and asking the biggest questions, and I and it was through the way that she was approaching people that I that I started to understand what the film was. And also, I was um, very intrigued by Bo and and his mental uh, surprising mental strength um, and willingness to to engage in uh, self reflection. Um, and they had a very um, the, their relationship was was an impressive was an impressive one that of people that you might think would never meet. But it's it's that this, this film was exists fundamentally because of Andrea's strength of vision and, and willingness to engage fully. I think and and it was anyway. So I, I I it was at this point that I was working in 2011, and um, and then I always was interested in what the fate of the film after the shoot, um, and then I was able to. To work with Andrea on the edit last year, and then we looked at it um, again. It's had many identities, uh, as as had the main character, and uh, but it, but and I had some ideas based on seeing previous edits, and then um, about a month or two in, I, I discovered Andrea's thesis, which is a particularly beautiful work in itself, is a book that um, that uh, guided the edit, and then I was able to bring in new new material. Uh, based on that. So when you say you discovered Andrea's thesis, what was, what was that uh, through conversation or some kind of aesthetic enlightenment? <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it, it was looking through the, oh, so I was, she gave me the, all the archive. Initially I was working from an, um, an edit, a previous edit, and then as it continued I was allowed to explore more of the material and then once I saw, and then I realized that, that from that I was able to piece together that there, there had been a short film and mm. that was connected to a thesis. So Andre is very modest about it, but I, I was able to read There's it. a book which is and, going to come out at some point, basically. That's what Tanya yeah. yeah. An actual thesis. <laughs> an actual oh, thesis. Right. Yeah. As a, well as yeah, a vision actually, of reality. Oh, I yeah, see. Yeah. In some respects, politics you know, is continuing to grow, but the, the, um, the, it, it was a brilliant thesis. Mm -hmm. Right, I see. Right. Spectral and spectacular representations of political violence. It was like a PhD thesis, which I finished in 2006. And that funded like quite a lot of the early um, explorations with him. But it was also, Josh did a PhD too. So that's how we, we couldn't get any funding for any of the work, apart from from academia. And at that time, it was easier. And it was really supported through yeah research, research-driven process making work and that led then to these films. Mm. So well, it's, perhaps it's just important to say at this point, I mean, it's, it's good that came up, that, that, that academic practice based funding for PhDs is one of the ways that many projects like this, mm. you know, often come into being and sometimes are completed. A number of artists, filmmakers in the kind of the community around the festival and Lux and the Experimental Strand will have made their works, their, particularly their longer form works, through that academic funding, um, which of course is, you know, tied in with the production of a PhD in a, in a more regular way as well. Um, but that is one of the few spaces, uh, at, you know, a duration over three or four years in some cases, where you can explore these themes, you're encouraged to explore these themes at greater depth than you might be in the mm -hmm. conventional film production cycle, where the exact opposite of the time frame is, is sort of encouraged. 
Um, and of course, it gives enough money in lots of cases for, you know, for, for an individual, a single artist maker to, to actually go out and, and travel a bit and, and to start investigating whatever it is they're looking to make a film about. Um, but also to do it in a critically constructive space where it's it's supported and in fact encouraged that you push and investigate further because you have to come up with original material as opposed to defaulting to an established model, televisual or, or filmic. And that's, so I think you know we, we shouldn't underestimate as long as it may last. I hope um, that creative space of investigation around practice filmmaking within the academy. Mm, you too, right? So um, you you've been on one shoot together. You'd come back. You'd. You, you went on another shoot, you, you, you both um, come to this, uh, I, I don't know, kind of moment, a moment of realisation of what the project should look like. So did you start editing at that point? Oh, can I just say one yeah. more thing about, because there was mm. this gap now, but, like, but what I realised, so initially, tiny, tiny teams and very ambitious scenes. You, those of you have seen like reenacting re Rambo with Rambo lookalikes, all this kind of stuff, like and <coughs> needing bigger teams but not having them. And I can shoot myself, like I really love shooting, um, but it's tough, it's really hard. And then you drive all day and then you shoot all day and mm. you have no oversight. But I realized going back so many times and twice I went with bigger teams, I mean, not bigger teams, we're talking about my five people, too big for me. Um, and one of the teams was with Taina, and that was the second time. And I realized that actually I want to shoot with one person ever. I don't want to work with big teams unless, unless it demands it. Because, But I really loved working with Taina because we had a similar sensibility. There wasn't this kind of, I, I realized also as soon as there are too many people and too many different energies, and I actually work very well by myself. Um, I like working by myself. And all in very small teams. And I think it's a trust issue and it's about real, taking really risks also with oneself. When one feels scared, it's like, am I asking the right kind of inquiry? Am I, am I now going in a territory that's quite dangerous, for example? I mean, I think these are really important questions one has to consider also, being a woman dealing with men mm -hmm. and the military, you know, like, so it's, it, yeah, that's what I wanted mm. to just say. That's good. So at what point did, did you actually go into an edit suite? Um, I, in March or April, uh, last year, and then I was I was editing for nine months, okay. and um, and then um, we would look together and review. And um, so you'd finished shooting. You knew oh, you'd got I enough see. material. Yes. Um, once you before you started the edit. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wish. But yeah. so we, I went on a last shoot when it was almost finished editing to show him the film, and from that came more material, which then got back into the film. Um, but it was really really important um, visit. It was one of the very important shoots, actually. Um, and But I already had tried to edit. I always edit alongside shooting as well. So there were edits, different incarcerations of edits. And then there was one edit, um, and it just I just couldn't make it work. So I remember asking Taina, I said, Taina, I need your brilliance to be with. Because she's Taina's not on your edit, but you're not. I'm a cinematographer. Yeah, she's a cinematographer. It's a beautiful eye, so I thought. But I trust her, her thinking. So I said, can you sit with me while I edit? I need you. Like, can you just sit with me? And then that didn't last very long. Tanya said, "Give it me." <laughs> <laughs> and Andrea is very open and brave. Um, and uh, um, yeah, and we, it was to discuss. It was to discuss matters. It was just a place for exploration. The edit. And where where did the editing happening happened? Did you go somewhere? Did you do it? Baby in one arm, yeah. the dog in the other. <laughs> <laughs> and my tiny, tiny just mm. said a new baby. Yeah. So we were working around the baby schedule. Mm. 
But, but yeah. just between, is, between homes. Between right. homes. Yeah. Yeah. I, some, I, I mean, I was quite late. One week, did I literally did 140 hour a week. Because oh, sometimes yeah. we had a very, we were very lucky to have the first public screening with the whopping project and, and, and that, um, but it wasn't ready. So, so yeah, so it was quite strange hours. Mm. Well, seeing as you mentioned the whopping project, maybe it's a good thing to, <laughs> yeah. so, um, uh, did uh, how did you how did the whopping project become involved? Did, was it an approach from you? Did you was it, it was an accident? Really. An accident. I first met actually Andrea probably around two thousand seven. Mm. So I was aware of her work for quite a long time. Actually, at the whopping project, mm. in fact, when we were, when we were building based organisation, and she used to come for events oh, that we organised. Can, can I just stop you? Uh, just a moment, because I'm aware that we've got um, a few people from overseas or non-Londoners okay, in the yeah, audience. Explain. So do you mind just saying a few words about the Whopping Project? So the Whopping yeah. Project is actually an organisation that dates back to the 1980s. And initially, it's still called, the Whopping Project is its kind of public-facing name, but it's still called Women's Playhouse Trust. And uh, it did work in theatre in the early days. and worked at the Royal Court Theatre and also produced uh, work in the derelict warehouses and other buildings in the East End, mo most of which don't exist anymore. And through that work in the 90s in the derelict buildings, it identified the Wapping Hydraulic Power Station, which thanks to the organization still exists. It was rescued from uh, collapsing under its own weight. And it was over a two-year period in the late 90s, it was refurbished and opened in 2000 as an arts venue, a kind of working across visual arts, uh, dance, uh, theater, music, literature. And it was an organization always uh, outside of the public funding schemes. So it always generated its own income. So it didn't have to rely on uh, any funding from outside and it had a complete freedom to what it did. Uh, but eventually, after 13 years, we kind of gave up on being a venue-based organization and sold the building. Mm. Uh, and sadly, we also lost our founder and director, Jules Wright, who started the whole organization in the 80s. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Uh, she died in early 2015. 
I worked for the Wapping Project for a decade beforehand, and then when it was apparent that Jules will die, uh, she kind of handed over the organization to me without actually telling me what she wanted to do. So because we never had the final conversation, as you would if you are very close to someone uh, that is very ill. Uh, but then since 2015, uh, I was in this fortunate position, which was very difficult at the same time, of having a, a well-financed organization uh, that had to embark on a new path because it didn't have a building anymore, um, but it wanted to continue working with the core of its itself, which is enable artists to make new work without putting any constraints, because actually we could do whatever we wanted with the finance we had. It had no restraint, no, no restriction. And Andrea was, Andrea's project was the first project that mm -hmm. we decided to do in this kind of new form. And it came from a train journey. <laughs> we were traveling together from Plymouth, on this uh, wonderful, I think they're called Southwestern trains that don't have internet or they don't have phone connection or anything like that. So you can't actually do anything else than talk. And uh, you can't do any work, any other work. So we ended up actually doing a lot of work, which we didn't know what we we're doing. So Andrea was telling me a lot about this project. And, and I definitely wanted to do something with her for quite a long time. I admired her drive, her ambition, and the idea of working outside of the kind of main funding schemes in the arts and in film. Uh, so we talked and talked about it, and I was getting more and more excited. I was like, I want to do this. I have the money in the bank to do this, uh, to make her life. I knew that she would do this project regardless whether we would help or not. But why not to make someone's life easier and to say, why don't you take this and, and do it? Uh, but I, didn't, I couldn't really make this decision on my own. So I was really itching to tell her, Oh, you know, tell me what you need, and we try to do it. Unless you tell me you need a much faster amount of money than I had. Um, but after that journey, I spoke to my co-director Thomas Anon Laucher, who works with me at the Wapping Project, and we said, and he said, oh, this is fantastic. You know, this needs to be told. And he was really, he was in the military in Italy years back, so he had a lot of experience of men's violence and you know, and the, the, the structures of those. So he was particularly interested. And we asked Andrea if she would have coffee with us. And she actually thought uh, that, she, that she would be helping Thomas on embarking on, on a new photography project. Uh, but then we, in the end, said to her, actually, what do you need to finish this film? And that's how we came on board. And we didn't know it's going to be such a long journey, but we're so, so what, delighted. Yeah. So what, what, kind of, what was the sort of date around then? How, how, how long before completion? Um, there were various dates, but mm. we thought it would be about a year. That's mm. why we set up a, a special preview screening mm. in September mm. last year, uh, and which was you know, for just for, the, for our guests. So that we thought that it would be pretty much finished by then. But it's probably good that it wasn't finished then. <laughs> Great. So what did it mean to you that the Whopping Project had come on board with the financing? Did, did that... Uh, uh, that just gave you certainty that it was going to be finished, or did it change your did it change that your kind of line of direction in any way, or you just continued? I mean, it was. I think it has stayed at that time. I knew it was about to come to closure, my work with him, and so it felt like. I mean, one year felt then totally possible. The reason why it wasn't possible is because we tried something quite 
um, and I'm very grateful we had the screening, a, a private screening, but for quite a lot of people. And we tried something very, very, what I thought was quite radical, but actually I realized so much by it not working. But it, it worked, you know, it, it wasn't a disaster or anything like mm. that. No, it was um, but it was seen, I tried to, to make a very, very conventional narrative that then would break apart and would question itself. But all that people would then see would be the conventional narrative. It was really interesting how viewers work differently than the makers work. <coughs> so I knew like right from the outside, we kind of felt like we had to go right from the outside. This is the kind of layering method we're using. We're using it like an action film. So basically, if you cut an action film, that's how I see it. A, a kind of subversive yeah, action film, right? So now, and then we will show after <coughs> Mina's spoken a, a clip um, on it. Um, but it constantly can question itself, but it still, it touches us. It's, I love cinema. I mean, it's, it's not to expel the viewer, but to draw us in and question also the shapes and forms. Um, so it didn't take that long, but what, what it meant to me was, uh, it's really hard as an artist to, because I've been never funded really through mainstream funding, not for lack of trying. I mean, that, you know, but it's, it's really hard to get funding for work that is slightly on the outside or question itself in a way or whatever. Um, and also, you know, it's very hard to write applications. I find it difficult to write them. And everyone struggles with this kind of stuff. Some people have find it easier than others. But um, and also, I'm very independent. Like in my mind, like I feel like I'm I have, I'm working to make money, and I'm at a stage in my life where I want to make only the work I really believe in. It believe in. Um, These so, are actually the reasons why we wanted to work with you because of the fact. But like to have like something like the Whopping Trust, which is so Jules Wright was an amazing woman. It meant a lot. It meant a lot that funding comes from. This is a gift to people to have funding that you can ethically really believe in, um, and that's really super rare. And it yeah, it was amazing. Excellent. Well, just tell me, just to echo that from a production side, I mean, it's in, it was inv absolutely invaluable because it confirmed, you know, an external validity on the project. It allowed the film to be physically finished in its production sense, which, of course, Amina can talk about much more. I mean, it could be actually realised, but it was a it's peer-to-peer -peer funding in a way. I mean, Marta is an artist filmmaker, Thomas is a photographer, and Jules Wright was an incredible woman with an incredible vision. And the Whopping Project's um, back catalogue is absolutely extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So there was, you know, there was an artist-driven funding project, which is really, really rare, of course, almost non-existent. But most crucially, I think, is, is what Marta said, is that when she said that, you know, she knew Andrea would finish this project anyway, but she still funded it. And that's almost the exact opposite of mm -hmm. most funding structures. But because, I'm so grateful we couldn't have finished it yeah. so no. easily. It was <clears throat> Because if they see that you can finish it, and, and there are some wonderful filmmakers that I've been privileged to work with who have constantly struggled for funding from a certain national organization whose first letter begins with A, um, <laughs> but I won't say anything more about it than that, um, where precisely because they have proven that they can make work um, outside of the extra funding they might be able to get, they're not funded, rather than actually showing that this incredible catalogue's been produced, but it would be much easier to make it with, you know, uh, a little bit less blood and sweat and tears if it was possible. So I think, you know, the reversal of all the expected models that the Whopping Project proposes um, is really extraordinary, and obviously should be a flagship for other structures that might want to shift how they think about this kind of funding. There are other foundations who internally over the years have, have made public the fact that they want to try and remake a model around artist-led production um, and they're absolutely to be to be praised and to be encouraged. Um, but for this film at, that, at this moment it was fundamental and also the fact that of its gender um, strength as well was really crucial um, from Andrea's point of view as a woman filmmaker with Tyner of course, Amina as well, 
um, but also with Martha and Jules as the as the drivers of, the, of that fund. It was really, really important, I think. So, yeah, thank you. So Amina coming on board was absolutely yeah. critical moment <laughs> and critical role for Amina. So um, what was the time frame between uh, the Wobbing Project funding coming and how did you find Amina and how did you strike up the relationship with her and bring her on board as producer? So I met Amina mm. for Cycle, for the uh, new film I'm making. Um, and then we we just talked a lot, right? And you yeah, I you think us, yeah. yeah. So we we met um, through Art Angel Michael Morris, who knew my work from working across all of Clio Barnard's films. And um, Andrea introduced me to this film that it sounds fascinating. She'll be working on for over 10 years and I like the fact there is a genesis and academic research because that's how The Arbor I think is such a spectacular film because Clio had that room before to do the research before Art Angel enabled her and there's somebody that works actually in um, you know um, conventional um, fiction films it was, you know, a really liberating process working with Art Angel. Um, but the facts of the matter here were that we, you know, there were very, very bare, bare resources. And, um, you know, when Andrea was explaining the film to me and sort of different titles, there were many, many different titles. <laughs> and I got involved uh, around the same time as Tyna. And at that time, she's like, oh, yeah, Purple <coughs> Heart. And I was like, I have no idea what a Purple Heart is. So I really, you know, uh, got to learn the material. But I did know about Rambo, but I was a child in the 80s. I wasn't allowed to watch Rambo. I loved the Colonel in the A-Team. You know, uh, and I've studied film, so Apocalypse Now, you know, I sort of knew very well. So I thought, oh, I've got all these ways to kind of access it. And actually, right in the beginning, Andrea, through the Whopping Project, had got a place on the absolutely brilliant um, Film London Build Your Audience programme. And Andrea had said to me, you know, oh, we've really got to know each other. Why don't you come on and produce this? And I said, oh, okay. She said, oh, I'm, do I'm on this programme. I said, okay. So I started that programme, building an audience for a film that I hadn't watched. So it was a really... Um, fascinating process because between getting to know Tanya and Andrea and I'd watched Andrea's films for the Art Angel project I really loved um, Tanya's work as a cinematographer and where she edited and I loved their language and for me and it's clearly Andrea had worked with conventional editors and Tanya this is the first um, feature that she's uh, cut um, but they spoke the same language I mean so much so that and I remember noticing that you often use profound and um, curious. And so they entered into my vocabulary and I was like, wow, part of this gang of profound and curious work that is really, you know, we are warrior filmmakers and we are women. So um, it was really, really brilliant. So, and we had all these kind of obstacles. So I think it was really sort of gathering, you know, gathering them in, saying we're going to make this film, you do what you want, Andrea, you know, you've worked on this for so long, Tina and you speak the same language, you know, just, just really go for it and, um, you know, have the conviction and I will support you, um, you know, so it was, it was really nice, so the whopping was brilliant that actually you'd given that deadline 
So that and poor Marta, <laughs> it'd been a long time coming. And I was, it was too hopeful, but in the, yeah, it was, I was wrong. I was completely wrong. But no, it was really good to work, and we had a kind of this work in progress. And it was really good for me to watch it on a big screen and assess. And we had a brilliant um, kind of uh, you know input from Charles McDonald as a as a mentor as part of the Build Your Audience. Um, and so yes, so that was kind of my role. But then. You know, I've done a lot of films, even though they talk to do the production development, I've done a lot of post-production on bigger budget films. So part of the problem of this film was that because it's been made over so many years, um, some of the footage had been lost and we're not working in a edit facility. We're working in houses with babies and dogs and there was um, no assistant editor. Normally, you know, at, you know, Tiny was a brilliant creative editor. So there was no kind of technician technical editor to take in hand all the footage and we you know there's so many different formats over the 10 years so then I pulled in favors to get the footage um, you know saved and then really carefully kept um, with a wonderful facility that I've used for many years so that you know we were just I was like right I have to early on I realized that you know when I started working on it and I hadn't watched it I've got to throw the whole rule book out of the window and just you know my brain has to be really you know elastic with this and you know not to get hung up on certain things so they continued and they were working away and I was really getting to know um the footage and things for me like watching actually watching Rambo and realizing it's a completely different film to the one I thought it was and how sad and sensitive and all sorts of other things it is and then this character and I was you know going through the process um, as they were discovering the film and um, the craziest thing was that I was doing the Dark River supervising the additional filming on Dark River in the snow in Bradford and it was Friday the 13th and, you know, with tech vehicles for a big drama, you're like, oh my God, snow and ice, no one can cope. Um, and it was so stressful and I thought, we're just going to finish now, we're going we're gonna, to um, do these few days of filming. And then I get a call from Berlin saying, oh, you're in Panorama, mm -hmm. are you excited? You need to send this as the film in two weeks. And I was just like... Oh my God. Um, and I'd worked on so many big budget films that had never been, you know, would love to have been selected for Berlin and Panorama and, and weren't. So I just was really like, oh my God, how am I going to, how are we going to turn this film around for Berlin? We can't move this date. We have to, it wasn't picture locked. And so, uh, you know, I thought, God, so there was a huge kind of push and everyone was involved in getting the film to picture lock um, and then turning around the film to get it to DCP and we worked with two really brilliant facilities that were also being flexibly minded and but you know decisions had to be made like you know we just didn't have the physical time to convert some of the archive footage because it came uh, you know from BHS sources etc so we made a decision which meant that the film r remained its length and we, we could finish it but that kind of brought up other you know, technical aspect problems. And it was just a period where everything happened. So Andrea had actually previously had this title, Erase and Forget. And we've been going around all these sorts of other titles, like Almost Heaven and, um, you know, and then when she said that, I said, that is the title of the film. You know, he says it in the film. It's um, so good to do with the te technical 
you know, aesthetic or, you know, what, which we should embrace of that VHS video era of, or, of the time that this, um, you know, lead protagonist comes from. And I think that was my kind of symbolic of my role, that actually it was just, you know, helping her know or kind of complete what she already knew. So, or, you know, which she'd already kind of come to, but it, that was the whole thing. So, yeah, I would, I don't think I'd ever want to um, have that experience again of turning a film around in a couple of, yes, it was r really hairy, but it has been so nice to have a bit of a re-edit for London. And I feel so proud to be part of this team and film. Well, all I can say, and I'm sure the people who've seen the film will agree with me, is huge congratulations to all of you. Um, you obviously make a, a tremendous team and you've achieved an amazing result. Is this a good time to show a clip? So, yeah, we want to show you a clip, but also, you know, that most of you will have given, been given a card. Um, and that card was what Francis Ford Coppola requested as a picture for a publicity still for Apocalypse Now. And he wanted to paste Marlon Brando's face over Bogreitz's face. So just so you know, that's why we made it into a little postcard. Right, so we just see the one clip now and another one later or two uh, together? For those of you, I, I would like the, oh, the, people, the, the people who haven't seen the film, would it be useful for you to see both clips? They're both together about 11 minutes. Yeah, that Let's might make sense. Thing. Let's do both clips together. Yeah, okay. yeah. Should we go and sit in the front row? Quite like to open it up for questions from the audience. Um, so, if there's anything you'd like to ask. There is Charlotte. Oh, um, we are actually recording it for um, yeah. instructional purposes. <laughs> um, so, question for or comment question for Andrea, which I think, um, as a filmmaker, I'm sort of intrigued by. That very much when I saw the film, um, I was thinking about your relationship with him and how central that is to the film, um, and the fact that you commented there upon one this thing about working on your own with someone and that unique kind of space that you had with him. And if you could maybe elaborate a bit more around the positives and negatives of when you then expand that, even just to involve one other person in the room. And I guess in context of this talk, how that relates to budget or external kind of pressures or, you know, did you feel any pressure to do that? Or could you have realized the film just continuing on your own? I mean, those decisions and how they actually impact what you are seeing on screen with that man and how he's reacting. So just, yeah. Can one hear me like this? I mean, I, I, I can't hear it, which is quite nice. Can you all hear me fine? Yeah. Um, well, I think because there's somebody who recruited assassins, right? Like, it, it's a certain kind of psychological capacity that he has. He's in extremely intelligent. He remembers everything, 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 everything with laser sharpness that I've experienced with him over the years. It's really interesting in certain things he forgets, which is, I mean, there's, 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 so on the one hand, he has severe PTSD. On the other hand, um, he's extremely intelligent and um, also very highly emotional, which is a, a unique, unusual combination when you think about, for example, like if you want to psychologize somebody who is ca capable of, 
of all those things that he was capable of. And I read a lot of studies around the capacity of killing, how to make better killers as soldiers, and also studies from soldiers um, uh, from, the, from within the military analyzing how to protect soldiers from the effects of this and different systems of soldiering, what they do. Um, and so I was really interested in, yeah, there's a man who has done all these things, and he's clearly charming me, right? That's what I've thought from right from the beginning. He is, has the capacity to befriend me, just as I have as a documentary filmmaker the capacity to befriend him. So there was always this unspoken distrust. But, but it's, it, distrust is not necessarily a bad thing, like don't not distrust. I think emotionally I saw something in him. That's why I wanted to make a film with him, and that was a brokenness and a willingness and a need almost an urgency to speak. There was a, there was a time in his life when I think we met where there was, he had just, um, well, he, he tried to attempt suicide and survived. And I think that questions, that, that brings with it the whole question also of what have I been part of. And he couldn't necessarily speak about this um, in a way that um, felt useful to him. So I think it was a, a fortuitous meeting when we met. Um, and it was less about you know, I'm from a very different political spectrum than he, but together, and I really respect that in him, together we tried to explore what what is the history that he was part of and how was he part of that history. Um, but at the same time, I think it was useful to, <coughs> there wasn't a straightforward, so there's, and I think maybe I, I was just thinking watching those two clips. The second clip, I'm sorry they were out of sync. We have a, it's it's a issue with transfer we have had for these clips. Um, but there are also moments of, of real depth with him. So they're not all, it's not so heavily archive based. I just realized that I've chosen these clips and they all have a lot of archive in them. But I think there was a, a need for me to figure out how to work with somebody like him. And so it was useful to have sometimes bigger crews because he was very differently. Um, he was different and he reacted different and he was more provocative and much more shut down. So I realized that actually it's such a delicate process. And I was just reading, I don't know if anyone of you has read the interrogation methods. Um, they have like a new way of, which is not a new way at all. And I'm surprised that it keeps coming up, but actually how to interrogate like torture doesn't work. Um, and it's about showing respect to the other person that makes them feel that they can actually say something. You know, it's a psychological dance constantly. Um, also for me then as a filmmaker, what is it that I want from this person? And for example, what was interesting, like, and I noticed it the first time properly with Taina when we were in the hotel room and we were really talking, suddenly there was a different layer. We were just touring gun shows with him and it was so complicated because I'm really not for guns, <laughs> obviously. And there has just, and also on the, on the visit before, uh, a man committed suicide next to me with an AK-47, his gun. It was absolutely horrendous experience. Um, but it took four hours for the police to come. So the people there, I learned also there's no police, like there's no safety net. So many people have guns because they feel there's nothing else. So it's more complex than we think, right? So it changed a lot of my attitudes. I'm still wish there was no guns in, in private use, but we have to look at the picture, not just from one angle. And we can't just have this rhetoric of us in them anyway. So there were, there were many things that bonded us suddenly because we, I experienced them there too. Um, and then we went on these gun shows, and it was really interesting because there was this time when, when in Oklahoma at that weekend, non-essential policing had been cut for the weekends, and there were so many people who just bought guns who were also of an age they shouldn't really have, I mean, need the need for them. And we were there together, and I think it was just a really complicated um, moment, and suddenly he just opened up 
it was a real different layer, and I, and I understood that now is the time for me to be in, in no, no, no longer with big teams. It was really weird. I knew it instinctively. And I think when you make films or when you work a lot with people, you kind of feel your way also into something. But it was a really different openness that suddenly came. Um, but there were many conversations where I felt like he opened up for a reason or not. Um, but then he caught me too. He was challenging me a lot. He said, why do you want to know what it's like to kill somebody? He asked me that many times before he would speak to me about what it was like. It took me years. You know, and he could, of course, just answer, but I didn't want to have that answer. I wanted to have a real answer. Why did I want that answer? Why did I ask this question? You know, so I think these are really important. And I've had reenactments in the film too. He said, why do you want me to do this? And I said, because your body holds that. You know, so I had to, he trusted me at that moment enough that perhaps it was worth doing or there was nothing else to do, I'm not sure. But I think it's a, yeah, it's, it's a, there's a respect and, but there's a, there's a healthy distrust. I think that's good. There's a moral distance, almost. But at the same time, there's also a journey together. I can't explain. I mean, I think we all know what I mean, I hope. If someone doesn't, then you can tell me. But sometimes we go on journeys together with very different perspectives. And I think we have to find a way in which we see each other. That's all my work is about, is how do we see each other rather than just make each other other, because it's so extremely dangerous. Amazing answer. Very, very enlightening. Very um, other questions? Maggie? This is a joint question. Oh. <laughs> Can you say it together? The US UK budget question. Um, no, I really, this is so, um, uh, the multiplicity of, of sort of your different experiences with the film is fascinating. Um, but I'm just very curious on a practical level because of the length of the project, the totality, you're talking about amounts that to me, seem small. So I just wonder how you kind of encountered that because, you know, through various stages that budget had to swell mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and then that public versus private money. Yeah. It's the same question because obviously I know quite a lot about your budget and how much you did on so little. And I'm very interested in the mix of finance between public and private because mm -hmm. often with the public sector, because I run a very mm -hmm. much artist-led um, program of work and I know that a lot of commercial money won't come on board until people feel safe that there's mm. something there and I think mm. with public money you can take risks and I hope we, mm. that we take risks mm. and I always feel so sorry that artist filmmakers are working on such small budgets mm. I wish it was different but I have to thank the Arts Council for giving giving us money so we can run the Jarman Award. We had all these things, mm. but we had the same question mm. because it is to do with such a small amount of money for such fabulous work. It's a really good question because I think that for me, I mean, you know, I come from like a background which was absolutely outside of, I super below working class. I mean, single parent, my mother didn't really cope. So I was never encouraged to go into a sector that would resemble anything to do with art at all, it was, expectance was very different for me. Um, and then, though, feeling here, it's really interesting for me that, that because I've been here most of my life in England, but there's still like such a division between the people who have access to the arts and not, right? So I'm, I'm going about this question in a different way. And I feel like for me personally, what has been the most, um, the, the ones which have supported me the most are the Arts Council, and I love mm -hmm. them, because I feel like they, and I believe in public support for the arts, or I believe in, in the kind of support which the Wapping Trust can bring, which is really a, a, a support that comes really from the outside for 
works that can take real risks. But I, I feel this is a public of public benefit, and I find it. Why I was saying this about the class thing is because now we see this cut in the arts. And for, but if I was a kid now, like a, a young person, um, I wouldn't have the chances I had now. I could have never gone to university. I don't think I would attempt to with the amount of money one would have to pay. So it's a really big crisis, and I feel to be able to speak and to speak <coughs> more evenly and equally. And I mean, I know the attempts, the BFI have new guidelines and stuff, but it's so crucial. Now, someone like me can work maybe on super low budgets because I've come, you know, I've always had to somehow make do something. Um, and I can film myself, and I love filming. And cameras are not so cheap, right? So you can just, my new camera um, costs 550 pounds, right? So you can afford that, um, and you can make a lot of stuff with it. Then computers are really cheap. Hackintosh exists. I mean, there's actually no more excuse to to not having. What is what I do wish that would happen more is a proper, true support for people who are working in this way without the need to um, have a script and have a pre-approved script by lawyers, etc., etc., etc. That is really stifling, and that's why we have a, a certain language prevalent um, in the film industry that is just speaking the same language. It doesn't matter who makes the films, they look the same. And that's a problem, right? Because so we have to fight for these spaces. And and even though I can make this about, I don't know how far, it's exhausting. We were absolutely yeah. exhausted. So you have a sm small baby in your hand, like uh, yeah. Amina has to has a baby, you know, but, so there's yeah. no childcare. We have yeah. the kid and everything with us while we do it. It's, it's crazy. And it, yeah, it's, it is not sustainable. So I think, you know, you managed to do this film there are hard costs to do with going to America, but you know, you've been unwaged, we've all been unwaged. So, you know, it's wonderful to have made a, a great piece of work, but it, you know, I don't come from money, I went to state school, I can't do another film like this. Like, you know, I have a child, I have certain expenses, and, and um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I get work in, in, in more con commercial work that's always supported by the BFI. But, you know, it's just not possible for me personally to do it again. So, you know, I think Andrea, I personally feel Andrea deserves to be working where she gets wage to make the work. You know, I think it's, she's made three features. And, um, you know, if we hadn't had the support of the whopping project at the end, there is no, you know, even if I, I mean, I have worked on very big budget films, but I couldn't pull the favours, you know, there is no way um, in that, in the time deadline that we had. So without whopping, we just could not have finished the film. And plus, you know, the way, the process we are, we're using the American system of fair use, you know, that takes, um, you know, money as well to, have a lawyer to look at it so um you know i think it's wonderful that you've made it but it comes with a lot of sacrifices but also like film london for example like you know there's so little budget i'm so glad that you exist though because yeah. without it you know that at least there, there, there are these people who support it's just on a completely different basis than filmmaking is supported conventional filmmaking i'm talking about not artist filmmaking <laughs> these funds that exist it's fantastic but this idea of the maker being paid is the thing yeah. that never happens and what that does it means that you have to be at a certain level of privilege in your life no matter where you came from in the past you know yeah. you you have to have some other very complex system set up mm. that enables you to pay your rent and make the yeah. film for nothing and that's um, I just think it, it ultimately negates certain voices 
I totally yeah, agree. I think we really, all really agree about that. No, and it's just, that. and it's, yeah. it's, that's the key, isn't it? How you retain a space that's free um, and it will encourage, you know, mm. this, this freedom we're talking about of not having to have formulaic way of making work but you know i haven't been away in like years and years and years on holiday like i the, the longest holiday i've had was like a week in the last five years so i don't go away i don't spend any money on anything i don't go out for dinner i save everything to make into work and that's just because i'm crazy in a way but i want to participate and maybe one day it will change but for everyone that is like me which are there many like you are too there are so many who can't and you know, so we're denying all these voices to people, and it's completely, completely unequal. And I think that has to change. So every every time I can, I mentor a lot of people, also for, for you know people who have absolutely no chance. And I mentor, and I try and try and participate within an environment where we claim a voice. I'm not going to be silent just because I have no money. <laughs> so you know, so for example, so I think we have to encourage each other and be there for each other, and ultimately we have spaces to show it to some degree. But I think the the, the industry think has to change. You need a system where where your wage. That's just a simple yeah, thing, you know. It's the biscuit budget on some films. So it's, I know it's you know, crazy. Yeah. Like yeah. you, that's you've got a right. So yeah. you know, that's that's firmly what I think. Absolutely. No, I mean, I mean, you know, the fact that we're talking about the idea of any kind of wage as a sort of bonus is ridiculous, of course. Yeah. And we're all, you know, united yeah, in that. Right. But I mean, this film, despite the, the the crucial, you know, intervention of Film London and the Whopping Project and so on at certain points, only existed, you know, in its final duration because of this incredible network of collaboration that supported mm -hmm. Andrea's vision. There's no question this film is Andrea's, but she's one of the great collaborators, as any of you who have seen her other work will know. And the collaboration comes on in the form of, you know, Amina being able to call in favors and. and and friends from the post-production and finishing sectors to support this work through to the people who have helped make it in different ways at different stages. There's a whole network of association and people in this room are part of it as well um, that sees a project or a series of projects over the years and, and supports them in that way in that kind of um, gift economy of exchange um, which is also fundamental and is based a lot of the time on chance of course the chance encounter that we've described in some ways with Marcia and Andrea talking on, on the train having the proper time to talk which might not have happened otherwise in a more formal context so you have this kind of combination of formal economies informal economies you know making do with what you have and putting it into the into the work and then this kind of you know this human and social capital which is underpinning all this kind of work and is almost never acknowledged in any formal or industrial infrastructure sense and and then you put onto the top of that that kind of incredible body of body of talent and, and support and skill when that does, you know, get a, a nudging up to a larger scale of possible production, often it's it's knocked back down again because of the kinds of limitation around script imagination and so on, and the endless toll of development on larger projects, which can completely kill the formal creativity that that huge sector possesses. I mean, that's a, something I feel really strongly about right now with certain projects, is that, you know, you try and take take that forward, and then it, it, that's a whole other conversation to have. But in a way, it's linked up, because there's a lack of joined up thinking across the sector, which means that this project has been supported by key parts of, of the other parallel structure. And now, of course, you look to distribution, and that's where a whole other challenge starts, which we haven't got time no. for now. Yeah. Um, but just to close on that, yeah. because because the relationship between life and work is tiny, 
profoundly expressed with her 140-hour week. No one's saying, of course, that you know you should make your work your life uh, so that you have no other form of existence. But these projects only work because people put their life into their work. And that, that relationship, that direction is not formally acknowledged. Um, so distribution is a whole other, other sector. But just to say that there will be two more immediate chances to see the film uh, on the 26th of November at Close Up in Brick Lane, if anyone would like to see Erase and Forget then, and in early February at Whitechapel the head of a larger release plan we hope for next year so just to log those and a beautiful dates. DCP Gareth thank you for that amazing sum up because I was just sitting here thinking how am I going to sum this up and you've, you've, you've beautifully well of course other opinions here. are available in the spirit yeah. of BBC impartiality um, so it just really um, uh, rem remains for me to, to leave on that note of kind of of, of the seriousness of challenge, the importance of action, but also uh, uh, the triumph of inspiration, which I think all your work represents. So thank you so much, um, you. Amina, Marta, Tyna, Gareth and Andrea. <coughs> thank you very much indeed for coming. Thanks for the Arts Council thank who support us too and Lux, our programme yeah. partner. And Elizabeth, See, I love who's facilitated all these, all these yeah, salons. Thank you. The technical Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.